Okay, very good evening and good to have you back at Kingdom 101. Welcome our listeners also on our SoundCloud. Let me start with this. Last week I taught this module at Tongling Bible School, The Art of Preaching and Presentation. And so what I did was I asked the students, would you sit down and list down some positive points of preachers that you appreciate? What would be a good preacher or what would be a good sermon to you? And the students got together, they discussed, and quite a few of them said that it is good to start a message with a joke. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to do. Are you ready? What do you call a city with 20 million eggs? New York City. <laughs> second one, second one. Why can't you tease egg whites? Because they can't take a yolk. Don't groan. You came to Kingdom 101 for expository preaching, right? But seriously, there's a very good reason why I'm telling you such bad yokes. This is so you'll appreciate tonight's teaching and learn to recognize a good yoke. I think we better pray, eh? Father, we want to thank you that we can have joy in your presence. We can laugh with one another. And Lord, we ask that you will lead us and teach us, Lord, because this is an important subject that we want to explore this evening. So Holy Spirit, come and guide us and teach us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. And so let's read the passage and we will dive straight in. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest." Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a very long passage. We are going to unpack quite a few things down here, so I pray. Stay with me. Usually when I read this passage, it's taught as a standalone passage. And especially the last few verses, right, 28 to 30, Come to me and you will find rest and we'll preach that and justify that we need a holiday. <laughs> Confession time, okay? I myself, I've never read this passage in the context of Matthew chapter 11, the entire chapter. I don't know if you have. My observation is also I've never really heard this passage being preached in the context of Matthew 11. This passage closes Matthew chapter 11. We have to review Matthew chapter 11 once more and where we have already been. You know that chapter 11 is about John and Jesus. John comes to Jesus with questions and Jesus first answers John, his doubts and his concerns. After he does that, he affirms John and he doesn't want the people to think that John is wrong or John is not to be trusted at all. So Jesus affirms John. In the last teaching, we see that Jesus then aligns with John. He stands with John and he says, look, 
John closes something, I open something, but it does not mean that he's irrelevant or he's wrong or that he shouldn't be listened to anymore. Everything still stands. And together, you have to learn from each of us. Now, whether to laugh or to cry, yes. Right? There's a time to laugh, and there are other areas that we learn that might be a little bit more serious. And in doing all these things, Jesus clearly establishes his messiahship. Now, if you look at chapter 11, it's also a little bit like Matthew chapter 3. Chapter 11 starts with John, but ends with Jesus. Chapter 11 does exactly the same thing. It starts with the concern of John, Jesus addressing those concerns, and later on, it's no longer about John, it's now all about Jesus. And the focus starts with the messenger, but ends with the Messiah. The focus is always Jesus. He always has the final word. The question we ask is, what about the Messiah? What is this passage about? What are we going to learn And this evening, we will see that there are two parts to this passage that we have just read. The first part deals with revelation and response. There you will see from verses 25 to 27, we will address that first. After that, you will see your link to a second part, and it deals with rest and responsibility. You can teach these two parts in two separate messages, I suppose. But I've chosen to put these two things together because then you can see the context, you can see the continuity, and you'll see how you can apply everything together. So let's look at the first part, revelation and response. At that time, Jesus answered and said, at what time is Matthew referring to? When we read Matthew chapter 11, 25 to 27, the parallel passage can be found in Luke chapter 10, verses 21 to 22. Now, in the book of Luke, you will see that Jesus says exactly the same things to the disciples, the 70 or the 72, depending on which version you're reading, after they have come back from their kingdom assignments. They had declared and they had demonstrated the kingdom. And then Jesus says and uses the same words. Now, Matthew uses this phrase down here, at that time. Now, we notice that it's two different times here. The gospel material is not necessarily chronological, but it is always contextual. The gospel writers insert material to make a very, very strong point, but depending on where they put in, it doesn't matter because their points are consistent. So always remember this. Sometimes you will see the same phrasing used in different places or in different times, but you will find that it is contextual. You will see that it is important to know what's before and what's after, and that you will learn that it is consistent in the point that they are making. So with that little hint, we must then see what the context is. Remember, Jesus was addressing this generation. What should I liken this generation to? Meaning to say, he's looking at that time, in that context, this kind of a generation. He's addressing these people. The context would be spoiled children in a marketplace of choice, calling the shots, setting the beat, expecting Jesus and John to dance to their tune. Immediately after that, we've already explored this, verses 20 to 24, woes are pronounced upon cities, calling to account their lack of response to the mighty works which were demonstrated. And at that time, Jesus then answered, and then he gives a teaching based on that context. So if we look at the context, we can see that there was a revelation There was a demonstration. There was a showing forth of the kingdom of God. The question is, was there a response? Keep this in mind as we explore further. 
because this first part is about revelation and about response. So we're still consistent. Jesus says there was a revelation. There have been revelation of the kingdom of God. Question is, did they respond? The next thing we see is what I call the Father's, inverted commas, strategy of revelation. And here Jesus goes on, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Now that phrase, Lord of heaven and earth, is a Hebraic idiom that acknowledges God as the creator of all things. Now Jesus has no problem with that. He says, this is my Father. And immediately he associates and identifies himself with the creator, calling him Father. Not only that, the word Father and that designation of Father will possibly, perhaps, there might be a little link to say, look, if you are going to be like little children, then you better know who your Father is. Don't be like spoiled brats, but be as good, obedient children. And that phrase, I thank you, Father, or I praise you, Father, it's an open declaration, an open confession, an agreement to say, you know why I'm thanking you? Because I agree with you. You know why I'm praising you? Because I'm saying, I'm lining up with your strategy. I know what you've been doing. I know what you're doing. I know why you're doing it. And I'm going to tell it to the people now. So this was Jesus openly declaring his agreement with the Father's, inverted commas, strategy of how he actually reveals then Jesus goes on, he says, You have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Now, when you look at this one line, it's like, huh? This is the Father's strategy of revelation. Are you sure or not? Right? It sounds as if God reveals to one group and not the other, does it not? Right? It looks as if He chooses the kind of people He wants to reveal to and then He hides it from another group of people. But that's not the right way to understand this. This is a semantic idiom that means everyone or that which is readily and easily accessible by all. In other words, this one phrase means you don't need academic or scholarly qualifications to know God and the things of God. If you will respond like a babe, if you will come like a little child, even a child can also understand. Who are the babes? This one word, the babes, actually refer to those who cannot speak. They are really not... Little children, as in toddlers, you know, where they can already understand you or can say a few things. They are people who have not learned speech yet, which means they're so small, really babies, those who wholly depend on others for help. I find it's really interesting that Jesus should use this one phrase down here. Remember before this, he was calling the children spoiled children. And here we have little children who are like babes. And God says, look, if you will be just like these babes, you will be able to have that revelation and you will be able to understand what I'm trying to show you. This is juxtaposed against the spoiled children who would exercise and exert their own will. How about the wise and the prudent? Compared to the babes who acknowledge their need for someone, they depend wholly on people for help. The wise and the prudent would represent those who depend on themselves. They will depend on their intellect, on their strength. Now, when you read something like that, does it remind you of Paul saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 39, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. 
and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. You see, God's strategy remains the same. He's revealing all these things to everyone, but He's really saying to all of us, actually, everyone can understand that. It's the way that you're responding that is the issue. And then Jesus says, Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. In some other translations, in NIV it says, This is what you were pleased to do. ESV says, For such was your gracious will. NASB says, this way was well-pleasing in your sight. This is God's strategy. This is the way God has packaged it. When the revelation comes out, this is how He intends to, him, to reveal Himself to everyone. It is that simple if you will stay simple. It is that easy if you will stay easy. In other words, there is no excuse. No one can say that God has not revealed Right? No one can say that, oh, yo, you know, God, no, how come like this? How come like that? No. If you will just be that simple, God has revealed Himself in so many ways. How the revelation is to be received depends on those who have acknowledged their need for Him. And so it's not just revelation only to babes. More importantly, is the way we should ask is what is the response of babes? And so the focus is more on the response than the revelation when we're talking about the babes and the wise ones. And so once again, we are consistent with the previous passage. God has revealed so much. God has revealed to everyone, to the cities. Eh? Oh, He has already shown Himself. No one has any excuse. God's part is to reveal. Man's part is to respond. Now that we understand that, We'll go on to the next verse and you see that it began with the revelation of the Father, His strategy. But Jesus switches it almost so subtly and it ends with the revelation of the Son. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Now, after stating everything about the Father and how He's the Creator and how He's God and how He's in control of all things and how He's going to reveal, suddenly Jesus declares, now everything the Father has delivered to me. Well, that's a very, very bold statement. And once again, Jesus is setting that tone and making that claim. You want to know God? Well, I am that close to God. You want to know the Father? Now you've got to know the Son. The focus shifts back to Jesus once more. And He says, only the Son knows the Father completely, adequately, intimately. In the same way that the Father knows the Son completely, intimately, fully. Everything about the Father, I know. Everything about the Son, the Father knows. And because He's given everything to me and I know Him and He knows me, let me say one thing to you. This is what this phrase is saying. Jesus is God. God is Jesus. They are one. And this is a very, very bold statement. Now, it's interesting to note this declaration in the Gospel of Matthew because this is not very Matthewan. It is more Johannan, you know, if you understand that term. right? It's, it's, you read this more in the Gospel of John, more than in the Gospel of Matthew. Let me quote some verses here. John would reveal Jesus as the Son who knows the Father a, a lot more times than Matthew ever mentions it. But here you see the harmony and the consistency of Scripture. 
John chapter 8, verse 19. Then they said to him, Where is your father? And then Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Exact same phrasing. John chapter 14, verses 5 to 9. So Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. And then Philip was really confused. Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and then it is sufficient for us. And Jesus says to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Very, very bold statements, right? If you know me, you know the Father. In other words, I am just like the Father. Because of this, then the following is possible. That the Son Himself, He's the only one who is able to declare and to reveal the Father. John chapter 1, verse 18 says the same thing again. No one has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Even the writer of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and you, you can look at it inside there, it says that God at various times, in various ways, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. In other words, if you want to know the Father, you've got to know the Son. So, oh, but I can't see the Father then see the Son. But I don't know how to learn about the Father. Learn about the Son. Where can I find things about the Son? That's where the Scriptures are. The Gospels reveal Jesus. Every part of Scripture reveals Jesus. And if we will study the Scriptures correctly and understand who Jesus is, we will know the nature of the Father. And so isn't it interesting? Jesus says the Father, He starts with the Father, the revelation of the Father, the strategy of the Father first. And then after he says, now everything has been delivered to me. So don't have to look at the Father anymore. You want to know the Father? You look at me and I will reveal to you who the Father is. So is it the Son who reveals or is it the Father who reveals? The answer again is yes. They are one and the same. I hope you don't miss the point because at that time, in that generation, they missed the point. They missed the point completely. The situation of that generation in that time, they were clinging on to position, to power, and to pride. They were pitting the professional clergy versus the rest of the people. And they were holding on to all these things. They did not reveal the Father. They did not know who Jesus was. They were just happy going through the motion of what religion would be. Not only that, it was all to them rituals, rules, and regulations. So although they went into Scripture, they wanted to keep the law, they wanted to keep it so carefully and so perfectly that they swung to another extreme and they became legalistic, it became burdensome. And it was so easy to tell people, this is what you must do, this is what you shouldn't do, this is how you should live, this is how you shouldn't live. But it was very difficult for, for them to keep it themselves. So it was easy to tell other people, and when you tell other people and you don't do it yourself, you become a hypocrite. Now, did they reveal the Father? Not at all. Did they see the Son in the Scriptures? Not at all. Did they understand the way of the Father and the way of the Son? Totally missed it. They missed the point. So there was no revelation. 
and if was, there was no revelation, then what they responded to was just a whole system of rituals, rules, and regulations. At the same time, because of that, tradition was more important. Function was important. They rested on presumption. Tradition became more precious than the law itself. So, oh, you cannot do this. Huh? Why? Oh, because tradition. We just don't do it. Huh? Oh, because we have always done it this way. And no one understands why. And tradition goes above the law. That becomes more important. And that's why the Pharisees were passing down oral traditions because the rabbis say so. And that's why they have to do it. So we must be very careful huh, today. My cell leader says so. My pastor says so. Be very, very careful. Make sure that you understand what you're doing and why you're doing that. They missed the heart of God. They were performing function after function. They were just doing things. They were, they were doing temple just like today we're doing church. They missed everything. They missed the whole point. They rested on presumption. What presumption? We are God's people, no? We are covenant people. Nothing bad will happen to us. So don't worry. You can just chill. It's all right. Just relax. And so you see all these things. They missed the point completely. There was no revelation. And if there was a revelation, it was a wrong one. And so if there's a wrong revelation, then there will be a wrong response that resulted in all these things. To correct this, John comes onto the scene and he preached against all the above. He says, you guys, repent. And after you repent, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Can you prepare for the King? Prepare for the Messiah. He will come. He will show you what's the right way. He will save you and show you what is right. People look at him and say, "Are oh, you so tough, this message. Are oh, you so ungracious, man. Every time preach repentance. Every time like that. And so, don't like him. Jesus comes onto the scene. He preaches exactly the same thing against all these things. He reveals the true heart of the Father. And he's saying to them, look, there's nothing wrong with the law. It's the way you approach the law that is wrong. You're missing the point. You're missing the revelation. Yes, your, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, but I'm here to show you a much, much better way. And then they looked at him and said, so easy, uh, too compromising. So on one hand, too difficult. On the other hand, too compromising. So do we laugh or do we cry? Yes. Do we rejoice or do we repent? Yes. But there was a revelation. The question is, did the people respond? And you and I know, looking at scriptures, they miss the point of this revelation. So as we look at this part here, before we move, before we move to the second part, we must address one point even so briefly. As we look at this whole thing, something would still hang in our minds. What about the free will of man or is it the sovereignty of God? Because when we read this whole passage and we see again the words like, you have hidden and you have revealed, again, our mind can't, can't wrap around these things, right? We, we seem to think, oh dear, if I read this passage by itself, it's so easy to come away with the idea that the Father chooses to reveal to some and not others again. That the Son decides who to reveal the Father to. And we can come to a conclusion to say, you see, la? predestinational. Oh, that God decides who He wants to reveal to and who He wants to save. Now, it's very easy to use this as a proof text for predestination. But you cannot not read the verses before. Look at the preceding verses. Jesus called to account both personal and corporate responses. He's saying, you've seen all these things and you didn't respond. 
Now, if you don't respond, I'll hold you accountable. So if you hold on to predestination, that kind of a thought, how do you explain these warnings? You will be totally out of place and totally unfair. If revelation were only given to babes, then it is not fair to judge those who are wise or prudent for their non-response. After all, it was hidden away. So sometimes scripture can trip us up, you see, if you only look at that. What do we do with verses like those from 1 Timothy and Titus, from 2 Peter, John 3.16? Let me read this to you. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. For it is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. Some men or all men? All men. So God desires all men to be saved, and then He pick and choose. How do you understand these verses then? Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Again, it's all men. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So is it all or is it some? My Bible says all. John 3.16, our favorite verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes, whoever, anyone. So is it the free will of man or the sovereignty of God? The answer is yes. Because it is divine revelation and God chooses how He responds, the way He does, and we've already established this, that it is simple enough for everyone. The question is not in the revelation. The challenge is in the personal response. So I know this is a very brief commentary only on this. You have to read up a little bit more on this for you to understand it yourself. But let me share a commentary with you. As I was doing my research, this is taken from the New American Commentary of Matthew. The history of the church is littered with attempts to reject or subordinate one of these two themes to the other, as classically in the Calvinist-Armenian debate. Now, if you are familiar with these terms, Calvinists would say predestination. Some are saved and some are not, or some are chosen to be saved. The Armenian would hold to the position of free will. We choose whether we want to be saved or not. Whereas the Calvinists say you don't get to choose. It is irresistible grace. Both themes must be affirmed and affirmed simultaneously in order to be true to Scripture and to Christian experience. Few believers have ever denied that they freely chose to accept Christ, but neither have they denied that key individuals and circumstances in their lives were influential in that decision in ways they did not manufacture. And I like this last line. God has chosen and drawn all who freely come to Him. Can you see that tension? There's all God and all men. It is God's divine revelation and it is also man's personal response. I used to get caught in this debate, you know, are you Calvinist? Are you Arminian? You know, today they ask, are you Calvin or are you Arminian? My answer is yes. <laughs> you must hold this tension because you will meet different people from both different experiences. So having dealt with the first part, revelation and response, we're ready to come into the second portion of this passage. 
verses 28 to 30. And here we will see rest and responsibility. And really these two words are the outcome of someone who responds correctly. Now, is it not true that when we read verses 28 to 30, Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Every time we read this, we underline rest. The tendency is to focus on rest, because we are people who are so short of rest. But can I submit to you that the correct focus should be, come to me, take my yoke, learn from me. If you don't respond rightly to these, you will not have rest. I don't care how many times you underline rest. If you really desire the rest that you can find in Jesus Christ, focus on the right parts. It has to be, come to me, take my yoke, learn from me. Let's learn together. Come to me. This is the correct response to the revelation that God gives. As little babes, as little children, we are to come to me. We are to go to Jesus. We are to respond in the correct way. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Now, let us be clear that, at least for a start, this does not refer to a tough day at work. In context, this refers to the heaviness of religiosity, the burden of legalism of institutionalization. That is what Jesus was addressing. Let's stay in context. It's not that, wow, you worked for 18 hours last night, you know, wow, you got to go and see so many clients and meet so many and your boss gave you a bad time. It's not that. Jesus addressed the way religious leaders have been teaching the people wrongly. The law became burdensome. Many were weighed down and they were killed, condemned by the demands of the law. And however much they do or they try, there always seems to be more to do and to achieve. And that's the picture. So against that kind of a situation, Jesus comes and He says, I give you rest. Well, that sounds good, man. That sounds really good. He's telling the people, are you tired of the demands of the religious leaders? He doesn't say it in those words, but that's what He's alluding to. Are you tired from trying to be better, trying not to sin, willing every bit of your willpower and still failing like crazy? Jesus promises you a better way. If you will come to Him, He's got a better way. And as we listen to this and learn about this, we have to ask this question, what is Christianity to you? What is Christianity to you? You notice Jesus didn't say, come to church. He said, come to me. He didn't say, come to cell group. He said, come to me. Now please, huh? I'm not saying don't go to attend church anymore and don't attend cell group. That's just not my point. Huh? I'm reading scripture. I'm just saying Jesus didn't say that first. He said, come to me. Real rest, biblical rest, is not found in a religion or a system or a method. You can do your spiritual practices, your meditation, even the world gives you some method like yoga these days. Huh? Very scary. Uh, listening to music, having a cup of cappuccino. Go on holiday and then come back again. Eh? Must go on holiday again and then come back and then must go on holiday again. 
and you must have me time and me time and more me time and me, 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 me time. It helps you for a little while, correct? But real rest cannot be found in a method. They are helpful, but they are never lasting. Ultimately, true rest, biblical rest that you're talking about can only be found in God, in the person of Jesus Christ. And this explains why so many people are disappointed with church and churchy stuff. They think, I go to church one. I go to this one. I attend this one. If you go to church and miss Jesus, you miss everything. Can I say this? If you attend cell group and miss Jesus and He's not there, you miss everything. If you can go to conferences and seminars and you miss Jesus, you miss everything. And the crazy part is that it may distract you for a while, but in the end, you are still empty if you still do not know Jesus. If you're not careful, even worse, all these things can replace Jesus. And it gives you a false sense of rest. Jesus didn't say, come to church. Jesus didn't even say, come to Kingdom 101. I pray that when you come to Kingdom 101, you come to learn about Jesus. Because when you know Jesus, you know the Father. So come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden. If Christianity to you is heavy, burdensome, killjoy, you better come to Jesus. So if I come to Jesus, I can rest? Yay! So does it mean I no longer have to work? No. So please hold on. We've got to go to the next point. So the first point in this second part is come to me. What's the second point? Take my yoke upon you. Now this happens after you come to Jesus. Before you come to Jesus, if you take up any yoke, it's the wrong yoke, I can tell you. After you come to Jesus, you take His yoke upon you. Now let's learn. What's a yoke? A yoke is that wooden bar, that horizontal beam that's attached to two or more animals for them to work together. Sometimes it can be put on a single animal also, but usually two or more. Symbolically, it refers to work. It refers to service or servitude. And if you look at it negatively, bondage. So if you're put under a yoke, guess what? There's work to be done. You're serving someone or something, and at the worst end, you are in bondage. Understanding that, we know then it is used negatively most of the time in the Bible to describe the yoke of kings and foreign oppressors. Israel was under the yoke of Egypt. Israel was under the yoke of Midian, the enemies, Babylon. Even under their own kings, Israel was under the yoke of Solomon. Now, Solomon was like the Richest king, wisest king, most glorious king, height of Israel's glory days. And yet, after that, when the son took over, the people said to the son, Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Can you see? Another negative connotation is that the people can be trapped under the yoke of transgression or sin. Jeremiah uses this phrase to explain to Israel why God subjected them to the yoke of their enemies. Lamentations 1 verse 14. The yoke of my transgressions was bound. And so because of me 
submitting to the yoke of my sin and my transgressions and not live correctly, God then subjected me or Israel to the yoke of the foreign powers. Now conversely, the opposite is also true. To be under the yoke of either a foreign king or a bad king, opposite would then mean to be under the yoke of a good king or the yoke of the kingdom of God. When God delivered Israel from Egypt, He set them free from Egypt. They are no longer slaves of Egypt, but they are now servants of Yahweh. So they were no longer under the yoke of the kingdom of Egypt, but would you agree? They are now under the yoke of the kingdom of God. And so to be yoked to God and His kingdom is to be yoked to His laws, His will, as well as His ways. So the Jewish mind will understand this word yoke very, very well and very clearly. When they declared the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Whenever they declare this, and they do it very, very often, they recommit to be under the yoke of God and His law. And to be under the yoke of God and His kingdom is contrasted against the yoke of the kingdom of man. When the rabbis teach the people, this is what he will say. Whoever takes upon himself the yoke of the Torah, this is the yoke of the law, which means the yoke of God and His kingdom, they remove from him the yoke of government and the yoke of worldly concerns. And whoever breaks off the yoke of the Torah they place on him the yoke of government and the yoke of worldly concerns. So to be under the yoke of the law means to be under the yoke of the kingdom of God, under the yoke of God himself. Now if you place yourself under this yoke, then you're free from the yoke of all government and all worldly concerns, which are not seen as good things. But you will be under a good yoke because you're under a good king. But it's not just about studying the Torah. When you study the Torah, it's also to serve God and His purposes. Can you see? It always works out in that sequence. You study the law, it's because you want to know the will of God and the purposes of God, and you live that out. Now, they missed it big time. They studied so well, and then they made an entire system of bondage and trapped the people in there. Now, today we have to be careful also. Because you and I can study the Word of God and still miss God. You can study scriptures all you want and still miss Jesus in the entire picture. So when Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, He's saying the same thing. I'm the King. I'm the Messiah. If you want a good yoke, let this yoke of the King be upon you. If you take my yoke, you are taking then the yoke of the kingdom of God. That's a good yoke. That's a good thing for you. Jesus is not introducing a new idea at all. He's just showing you a positive spin on what a yoke should be and what a good yoke is all about. All the other yokes, heavy, burdensome. You will cry. You will hate it. But mine, my yoke is easy. The burden is light and I will give you rest. And you know, friends, the promise is that Jesus is still in the business of removing wrong 
and bad yokes so that he can replace all these wrong things with his yoke, which is good. Now, let me give you at least three things here. What are bad yokes that you shouldn't be under? The first is the yoke of sin. That's a bad yoke. The yoke of sin is contrasted with the yoke of Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can break this yoke of sin over you. If you are yoked with sin and under sin, then you serve sin. That's why Paul says, when you believe in Jesus and you are baptized with Him, you died with Him and you were raised with Him. You are no longer that old person. You have been raised to a new life. Sin has no hold over you anymore. And that's the promise that we have when we come to Jesus. You can never fight sin by yourself. But Jesus can break this yoke of sin over you and give you His yoke, which is good. And so when you are set free from this yoke and the bondage of sin, remember, you no longer serve sin. Today, you serve Jesus. But many people tend to read only one part of the equation that says, sin has no longer any hold on me, and they full stop. They forget the serving Jesus part. You are no longer slaves of sin, but today you are slaves of righteousness. And it's a good yoke. So there's a first yoke that is a bad one that you want to replace with a good one. Don't go back to this bad one. The second one is the yoke of legalism or the yoke of a religion of works versus the true yoke of Jesus. The law will always make you try and try only to fail and fail. On one extreme, condemnation. Feel lousy, feel condemned, feel whatever I do is also not good enough. Why do I even try in the first place? Don't want to. Huh? Work six days a week already tough. Come to Sunday, someone told I'm lousy and worse. Don't want to come to church anymore. On the other extreme, pride. Maybe you are able to do some things better. And then you look at other people now and you say, hey, if I can do, how come you cannot do? So one extreme condemnation, on the other one, pride and both are terrible. And so Jesus comes and he says, look, that kind of yoke of legalism, trying to earn your own righteousness, is terrible because you can never do it. That's why it gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And if the church or Christianity is like that to you, then it's wrong. You're going into a system. You should be coming to me. Jesus says, I can set you free from all these things. I will set you free from this kind of a thinking. But after I set you free, don't abuse this freedom. Redirect this freedom so that you can now serve me and serve one another out of love. So do we still serve? Yes. The question is, what is the mindset that we serve with? What's our motive and our motivation of serving? The law seems to say this to us. You serve me and then I'll love you back. That's what the law seems to suggest, right? If you're obedient, then I'll bless you. If you're quite quiet, then I'll give you nice things. You know? And that's the way the law seems to suggest to us. And so we tend to think Christianity might be like this. You know? I better serve Jesus you know, so that I can get my blessing, you know? I can get this, and get my promotion, I can get all these good things. Jesus says it the other way. Come to me because I love you. Love me back and then out of that love, serve me. Can you see the difference here? You start with love. Always you have to start with love. 
if you start with trying to earn God's love, you're in a bad place, man. That's a bad yoke. Come to Jesus first. Take on the correct yoke. And you realize, hey, this is cool, man. Then you start to serve Him because of this yoke that is good. So don't serve as slaves to the law. Serve as bond servants or love slaves to Jesus. That makes all the difference. Notice, huh? we're still slaves, huh? but a big, big difference. The third yoke that is not good is the yoke of men or the yoke of the world. Once you serve a system of men, it will kill you. You have to serve Jesus first. When you come into an institutional kind of an understanding, sometimes the structure comes upon you and you've, you get weighed down. You can't move. And you're wondering, how come it's like that? And even in Christian circles, we struggle with that. Don't serve the system of men or a system even of the world. So whether it's within the church or outside of the church, a system can kill any one of us. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers or with paganistic or spiritual practices. I don't care what people say or what they rationalize. There are spiritual implications. I'll say something which may be offensive or sensitive, but I'll say it anyway. A lot of Christians are still practicing yoga. If you speak to the people who understand the origins and the roots of yoga, they will tell you it's a spiritual practice. The word yoga itself means to be yoked. Isn't it funny? That's why I have to say it in this teaching. It's a bad yoke. And Christians are saying, but it's okay, you know, I'm doing only this small part and that small part. Don't start with that. There, I've said it already. (laughs) Our only concern must be Jesus. What He says and what He thinks. Because finally, He has the last word, if you remember that. So don't serve men and institutions. Serve Jesus and His kingdom. The third thing is to learn from Jesus. How do you do this? First, you come to me. Then you take up my yoke, take up Jesus' yoke. But after you take it up, how, how, do, you, how do you work with this yoke? Right? Everyone needs to know how to function with this. So Jesus says, you learn from me. And the focus here is the word learn. Because to learn is the root word where we get the word learner. Now, it sounds very profound, right? A learner learns. But that root word learner simply means disciple. Disciple. So these last three words, it's about discipleship. And discipleship carries with it responsibilities. Yes, my dear friends, there's work to be done. But you say rest. Yeah, you can also rest. But there's also work to be done. So as you take up the yoke, it's easy You get to rest, but you learn how to work now from a correct posture of rest. How do we do this? You learn from the master and from the king himself. There are two pictures down here. If you look at this picture of these two animals with the yoke that's placed upon them. The first picture is that Jesus could be the one directing these two animals, right? He's the one steering the yoke. So he's the one in charge and showing you where to go and how to go and where to move in the correct way. The other picture, it's more personal and closer to our hearts, is 
of Jesus being the other animal that is under the yoke. One animal would be you or myself, and the other animal would be Jesus. Now, both of these pictures are applicable. But let's explore the second one a little bit more, because that's a really beautiful picture of us being yoked or being paired with Jesus. Now, the animals, when they are put together, usually they will put an older animal with a younger animal. Why? Because the younger, more inexperienced, uh, either a bull or an ox, he won't know where to go. And he's not steady. He'll be misaligning all the way. But the older one would be experienced, would be stronger, and he's holding steady, and he's able to listen to the one who's directing. And so he keeps a straight path, whilst the other is brought into alignment with what needs to be done. And so Paul has a very beautiful picture, or one beautiful phrase that says, imitate me as I imitate the Christ. So there are two ways you can understand this. You are being yoked and you are being paired with Jesus. You walk with Jesus. You learn from Him. But if that's still too far-fetched and you just can't picture yourself with Jesus, you need someone physical to know how to learn from, then learn from someone who can be your mentor. Learn from someone right, who, who is steadier. And then you walk together with this brother or with this sister, imitating him or her as he or she imitates the Christ. Whichever the picture might be, you can see it's a picture of discipleship, learning from someone who is more experienced. You're also keeping in step with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit. You're walking in alignment with Him. You don't go too fast, you don't go too slow. You're staying with Him and you're moving together with Him. That's why in Akiva's Awakening, I never talk about us working for Jesus, although that is true. I prefer the phrase, working with Jesus. It is this picture of being under that same yoke and learning from Him. He's saying, look, this is the way to do it. Let's work from a posture of rest. It may not always be smooth, but we can always rest in Christ. And as you do that, it's not easy all the time. This physical rest in this present time is not a complete rest. You can try to rest as much as you want and you'll still feel tired and you still feel a little bit uh, pushed or stretched. But we are learning how to work to enter that complete rest. And that is the rest that we will receive when we meet the Lord and enter into His perfect rest. Jesus mentioned two aspects that are very important. He says, you learn from me because I am gentle and lowly in heart. Let's consider the first word, gentle. Gentle means to be meek. doesn't mean to be weak. He's gentle, but he's steady. He knows exactly where he is. He knows what he's talking about. And this is contrasted with someone who may be harsh or angry or demanding, controlling, manipulative. If you work with Jesus, if you are yoked with Jesus and you're carrying His work, Jesus is not manipulative. He's not cracking a whip at you and pushing you. He's gentle. He's meek. But He's very, very precise. He will tell you what is needed. And even if He rebukes you, He will rebuke you lovingly, graciously and gently. The other word is lowly in heart and that means to be humble. And this is opposed to being proud, haughty, arrogant, seeking prominence, someone who is having an entitlement mentality. I pay you, you know, you better work for me, you know. Jesus says that kind of yoke, bad yoke. But if you work with Jesus, you're yoked with Him. 
He's humble, he's lowly in heart, he will not push you around. You know why? He's very secure in his own identity. Right? You notice those who are insecure in their identity will always pull rank and use their position upon you. So Jesus is not a pushover, he's not a slacker, he doesn't have mediocre standards. Don't ever think that. Sometimes we think in the church, it means everything gracious, it means everything also must accept one. You do lousy, also must honour you. We cannot say anything bad. I don't think Jesus means this. He's very, very precise. He's not insecure, like I said. He's not afraid of losing people. He will never put people down. He will never demean others. As you work with Him, you will see that He is a healthy balance of grace and truth. Love and tough love. His yoke is easy and the burden is light. And He is a good and a loving King. And because He is good, He is loving, He is worthy to be served, He is worthy of all our heart, our mind, and our strength. And that's why when we take His yoke upon us, we must respond correctly. It's all about learning from Him. Discipleship means responsibility. We work it out through obedience and through service. And our obedience is born out of love. Our service is joyful service. But whatever we do, however we do, it is always from a posture of rest. So as you look at these three little points here in this second section, come to me, take my yoke, learn from me. I think we're ready to conclude a rather long passage that we have studied this evening. Remember, it started with revelation, and revelation requires response. In case you forget, remember, God is the one who reveals, and man is the one that has to respond. There's nothing wrong with the revelation of God. It's so simple that little children, babies can understand it. Our problem is that we are too smart for ourselves. We try to think too much, you know, and we think that we are better than God. We don't need God. So be like babes. Be like little children who trust God completely. Don't be like spoiled brats who always have to demand your way. And as God reveals, and as we respond, if we want to know the Father, get to know the Son. Get to discover Jesus all over again, because it's all about Him. And that is what this Kingdom 101 is all about. We want to rediscover Jesus over and over again. Because many times we can go to church and we discover Christianity in a way, or churchianity, whichever way you want to call it. And we learn a certain system of how to behave. And many people know about Jesus, but they do not know Jesus for themselves. So my encouragement to you is, know the King. And then learn how to embrace His kingdom. And then respond correctly. Come to me. Come to me, Jesus keeps saying. He keeps inviting. Respond. I've already revealed myself to you. Will you come to me? And when you do that, then there's rest in the responsibility that we have received from Him. Come to Jesus, not the church only. Only in Him will you find true rest. Only Jesus can set you free from wrong yokes so that you can have a good yoke. And yoke means that there is work still to be done, responsibilities. Thank God that His yoke is easy, the burden is light. So friends, I hope you are very convinced. Is it rest or is it work? And the answer is yes. Learn from Jesus and learn from others who imitate the Christ. And together, let's encourage one another to keep running to Him so that we can continue to work from a posture of rest.
Come, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for a good yoke that comes from you. As a yoke of the kingdom of God, as a yoke that is easy and a burden is light. Lord, let us not confuse ourselves to think that the rest that you give to us means that there's nothing else that we need to do. Lord, far be it, Lord. But we thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit. You have given us, Lord, a good example of what it means to, to love you and to serve you. And because you loved the Father and served him obediently, faithfully, even all the way to the point of death. Lord, will you give us that same ability and enablement by your Spirit so that we can serve you and also serve alongside one another too. So help us, Lord, as you reveal that we will respond correctly and as we respond that we will rest in you and even in the responsibilities that we would receive from you. We thank you, Lord. We bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.